Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. Now, in this episode, I'll begin what will be a three-part look at Willa Cather's novel, One of Ours. We've been looking at Willa Cather for a while. We, we studied uh, her The Troll Garden, Old Pioneers, The Song of the Lark, and My Antonia. And then this leaves us with uh, One of Ours, which will finish up our Library of America volume of Cather's early, earliest novels. One of Ours was published in 1923. It won Cather the Pulitzer Prize. It's, I guess, her World War I novel. It's, I think of these early works, at least compared to Old Pioneer's Song of the Lark and My Antonia, it's a, it's, it's a much weaker work. Um, it is kind of rehashing some old ground. For instance, it's, it's another novel set kind of in the prairie and the Great, Great Plains. Uh, again, this one's specifically set in Nebraska, like Old Pioneer's and My Antonia. Now, what I mean when we, I say we've, we've sort of seen this story before is the, the theme of a sensitive, intelligent young person feeling a bit out of place, a bit alienated in the small towns of the West, who then kind of needs to find a purpose in life that somehow transcends it. And some characters, like the character in Old Pioneers, really commits to developing the frontier and developing the farm, but still feels something's lacking in her life. In Song of the Lark, it becomes music as a way for someone to escape. In My Antonia, Antonia stays in the Nebraska frontier, but the narrator of that story does venture out for other things and finds, you know, professors he's interested in, ends up going to Harvard and kind of turns his back on, on that frontier. And in the Troll Gardens, you had a lot of stories about characters who either were stuck in the West and in the prairie and on the farm and wanted to break out, you know, but some couldn't, some did. So it, that's the theme we've seen again and again. And one of ours is the same story, essentially, but it's set in World War One. And I'm going to get to what really troubles me in this novel, especially when we get to part three of it. But I'll, I'll just um, I'll just come out and say it uh, now. It, it it almost I know this was published in 1923. And, you know, how these th how themes like this influenced I guess the rise of the right in the 1930s is not something that I think, you know, Cather would have known about. I, I don't even know if she fully agrees with her character's approach to these questions, but there is a great deal of romanticization of war and conflict and homeland. And those are themes that really come out in the last part of the book. Essentially, the plot of, the, of one of ours is this young man, Claude Wheeling, Wheeler, sorry, Claude Wheeler is in this you know, he's growing up in this farm. He's, he's kind of destined to inherit the farm. In fact, he does for a while after his father retires. His father's fairly successful. In fact, he has businesses in Maine and in Nebraska and other places as well. So he ends up slipping up his sons to different concerns. And Claude eventually ends up essentially inheriting this farm. But he's always anxious and feeling kind of a longing for something in his life. He doesn't quite know what it is. It's a very romanticized type of longing he's 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 looking for and he never can quite define what he wants and I think that's the first sign that we're really in trouble here with this character because there's nothing really concrete Wheeler Claude Wheeler wants to grab onto it's always something really abstract or it's just a kind of an, a, a, a malcontent in his in his in his feeling 
he's got kind of the regular host of people around him. He's got the kind of the farm girls and the kind of the conventional marriage partners for him. In fact, he does marry one of these women. He's got his brother, Bayless, who's much more a business-oriented person who he grows to resent, um, a much more practical person. Like, And, you know, he's got, he goes to temple school and he resents that his parents sent him there. So he's he's got a lot of resentment about the world around him, but he doesn't have a clear vision of what could come. And I'm not saying that's fully useless to feel malcontent about one's world, but the way Wheeler approaches it is it doesn't really presume to ask any deep questions. It's just he doesn't really want this anymore. And so he tries marriage. So he marries kind of the next part of the book is he marries this woman named Aned, um, basically a very conventional local girl. He marries her and then that doesn't really work out. In fact, she's more interested in missionary pursuits and prohibitionism. And there's some interesting stuff in the first half about the changing kind of frontier world and the rise of social movements and the role of religion. So there's good stuff in, especially the first half of the novel, on those themes. But Inid is very much focused on religion. And this Wheeler is essentially, I guess, not technically an atheist, but he doesn't seem to really care much about church, right? I, I guess a lot of Christians will look at him as essentially an atheist. And I just don't think he's doctrinaire enough to to articulate it in that way. Um, eventually, he just lets her go off to be a missionary in China, and we basically never see her again. Then he, you know, so that part three is really about how his marriage fails. Part two is about his courtship with Anid and his failure dating other other girls in t- in town. Then in part four, he basically decides to go into the war. He goes to war. It's 1917. U.S. joins the war. And really with nothing else to do and no other purpose in life, he jumps on the ship. And so part four of the novel, it's almost about you know, 50, 60 pages, is just spent on the ship. And he starts to meet people from around the world. And you get a nice kind of more, he gets a more cosmopolitan look at the world. He collects other people's stories. And he kind of, he likes that. He gets something out of that, but he also starts to face death for the first time because he works like in the medical. He helps with the medical side of things on on the ship, and he, a lot of people die along the way. And then in part four, he's in the trenches in France, and a lot goes on in that part five. It's about a third of the novel. He he sees a lot of death. He sees a lot of poor leadership. So I don't know if that's that's kind of Cather doing the conventional kind of man from the trenches compared to the incompetent leadership. We've seen that in World War One novels, you know, since World War One, right? That's such a common theme. And those stories probably true, certainly, but it's a bit cliche when we look at World War Two novels. So you get a bit of that. He really he gets more and more of like kind of meeting other people from around the world or from around America. He takes a leadership role. He's like a lieutenant, um, not a high ranking person. But what he, he really I think gets the most impact from is like talking to the French peasants and the local people and interacting with them. And he really starts to get this fascination with their struggle for their homeland. And he just starts to find meaning in that and find meaning in the struggle of war. And I think that's where the novel really becomes problematic and almost at times a proto-fascist text. Uh, Claude Wheeler eventually dies in the trenches um, and then the novel abruptly ends, you know, with a a short snapshot of, of life back home and his in the farm. Now, there's a lot of nice things about One of Us to talk about. I think especially the first half is quite rich. I think there's characters. There's like one character who remembers the Civil War, and she's sort of the more anti-war figure, someone who doesn't understand why a young man would want to go to war. Mahalis, she's like a servant on, on the farm. I think, you know, Enid is an interesting character if you're interested in this theme of, of prohibition and 
what I want to say, prohibition and kind of religious and the Protestant missionary impulse of the late 19th, early 20th century, that's there. The problem with this novel for me is that Claude Wheeler is such an unappealing character on so many levels. He just doesn't seem to work for me because he doesn't have a purpose. I I understand people feeling alienated. I, I certainly do. And I understand that it can be a compelling character from time to time. It's not really that compelling of a character here, unfortunately. And I just got annoyed with Claude for much of the novel. All right. I'm not going to go through this novel chapter by chapter. I, I am going to try to make three episodes out of it to, to fulfill my, my agenda here of 100 pages at a time. It's just going to be a little bit of a struggle for me. Plus, I'm on vacation now, and uh, it's, it's, hard, it's, it's a little bit harder to do these things in Wisconsin. I always have high hopes that I'll be able to do it's a lot of reading over the summer, but it never quite works, works out. Now, now, one of ours opens um, with a section of book. It's in five books. The first book is called uh, On Lovely Creek. And this is basically our introduction to our characters, our introduction to the location. And again, I think the first half of this novel, until he kind of gets on the boat, is really a classic Willa Catherine novel. And I don't want to blame her for trying to do other things in the second half. I, you know, I don't know where she got her research for World War I from. Uh, she, she obviously wasn't there. And maybe that week, maybe that weekend that she was doing it kind of secondhand. But I want to trust her research methods as much as possible. It's just she knew the frontier so well. She knew the prairie so well. And it's just so much stronger in comparison. I mean, maybe compared to other World War One, you know, novels reflecting on World War One at the time, this is still strong. I mean, it won a Pulitzer Prize, so it, it, it got some recognition at the time for, for skill. Anyways, I'll, I'll try to talk about um, this first part. I'll, I'll do parts one and two in, in this episode. Uh, the first part is called On Lovely Creek, and that's followed by a, a, a book called Enid, which is about the woman who will, who will become his wife. Um, I think the most interesting character we meet is Mahile, who is a hired woman. And she she's older and she's been around. She's she remembers the Civil War. Okay, here's how here we can learn a little bit of her background early in the in the tale. Mahaley quote Mahaley who had come to them long ago when Claude was only a few months old. She had been bought brought west by a shiftless Virginia family, which went to pieces and scattered under the rigors of pioneer farm life. When the mother of the family died, there was no place for Mahaley to go, and Mrs. Wheeler took her in. Mahaley had no one to care for her, and Mrs. Wheeler had no one to help her with the work. It had turned out very well. Mahaley had had a hard life in her young days, married to a savage mountaineer who often abused her and never provided for her. She could remember times when she sat in the cabin beside an empty meal barrel in a cold iron pot waiting for him to bring home a squirrel he had shot or a chicken he had stole. Too often he brought nothing but a jug of mountain whiskey and a pair of brutal fists. She thought herself well off, now never having to beg for food or go off into the woods to gather firing, to be sure of a warm bed and shoes and decent clothes. Mahili was one of 18 children, most of who grew up lawless or half-witted, and two of her brothers, like her husband, ended their lives in jail. She had never been sent to school and could not read or write. Claude, when he was a little boy, tried to teach her to read or write, but, when she, but what she learned one night she had forgotten the next. Unquote. And that's a bit of her introduction to her. She's she's a bit of a cliche character in that she's kind of this person who had this hard life, suffered a lot, and therefore is like the down to earth wise person. But 
I would rather actually have a whole novel about her and her story. I, I mean, I think there's a great novel just in what I just read there. And, you know, kind of meaning the same type of families, the same type of people that, you know, the kind of middle class, fairly prosperous, prairie, f- you know, farm families that we've we've read about. They're, they're interesting enough. I, I thought I think o- o- uh, My Antonia and Old Pioneers are great novels. I've just kind of by this point seen it already. And I, I wonder if Willa Cather could have written a novel about Mahili and her, her background. Anyway, she's the most interesting. We also meet, uh, so Nat Wheeler's the father. We, uh, we were introduced to him. I won't say too much about him, though. Um, Bayless Wheeler, the eldest son, is, is much more of the practical capitalist person compared to the very sensitive and sentimental um, Claude. There are also people nearby. Uh, the most important of these is Ernest Havel, and this is someone who, a neighbor boy from a, a more prosperous family, who really Claude wants to hang around with because he somehow touches his sensitivity and his emotions and gives him a bit of what he he wants. Now, as the novel opens, they're basically going to, to preparing to see a carnival. So he's still like a teenager, and they're going to see this carnival with the, with his friends, and the, it's kind of something that wakes up this this small community for a brief period of time. Now, the early conflict in the novel is about the temple, the so-called temple school, um, which is basically a denominational school that Claude is being sent to. And we've just learned that Mahaley never had the chance for an education. And Claude spends much of the early part of the novel complaining about his own, the lack of education he's being offered by what he thinks are bad professors at a bad school that's devoted more to religious speculation than to actual academics. He wants instead to go to state school. And we get a description of Claude's restlessness um, here, uh, a fairly compelling one. Quote, a violent temper and physical restlessness were the most conspicuous things about Claude when he was a little boy. Rolf was docile, but had a precocious sagacity for keeping out of trouble. Quiet in his manner, he was fertile in devising mischief and easily persuaded his older brother, who was always looking for something to do to execute his plans. It was usually Claude who was caught red-handed. Sitting mild and contemplative in his quilt on the floor, Ralph would whisper to Claude that he might be amusing to climb up and take a clock from the shelf or to operate a sewing machine. When he was older, he played out the doors. He had only to insinuate that Claude was afraid to make him try a frosted axe to his tongue or jump from the shed roof. The usual hardships of country boyhood were not enough for Claude. He imposed physical tests and penances upon himself. Whenever he bear, burned his finger, he followed Mahaley's advice and, went his hand cl- and w- held his hand close to the stove to draw out the fire. One year he went to school all, win- all winter in his jacket to make himself tough. And, it, and it's more like this, but it's, it's that he always kind of pushed himself. And this foreshadows his end where he makes a reckless charge at the, at, you know, the German line. And, and you know, and that's the, <laughs> that's the story of Claude. Um, but part of this restlessness then becomes, you know, he wants to stand up to his parents for sending him to the school. And there's a whole tension over, you know, why he was sent to this school and who influenced his parents to send him there instead of the state college. Um, you know, there's actually this guy named Brother Wheeler who hangs around and is actually convinced. Sorry, not Brother Wheeldon, Brother Weldon, who convinces the Wheeler family to send um, Claude to the to the Christian school. Anyway, so Claude starts to attend classes at State University part-time just to keep himself interested. He ends up meeting a man named uh, Julius Ehrlich and he spends 
you know, this kind of raises the level of his peers and he likes to hang out with him. He's a very important figure in him because he's another kind of person who kind of seems to inspire his his just general curiosity. It's still a very inner, it's a real fairly vague kind of curiosity and, and restlessness about the world. But Ehrlich helps fill that gap. Um, he starts dating a girl and I think this woman... Um, What's her name? I, I can't even read my own handwriting here. Um, Milmore, I think. And she ends up being very conventional and boring. And basically, she's too basic. And Claude Wheeler doesn't want anything to do with her, even though he's not that great of a catch himself. He's really too odd. But he sees her as very essentially basic. The Ehrlichs eventually invite Claude to like a dinner party with, and there's. You know, I think she had to include an opera reference. Catherine had to include an opera reference in the opera opera reference in this book, so she included it in with the introduction of a character named Madame uh, Schroner Schultz, who was an opera singer and was visiting with the Ehrlichs, and and that's kind of another window into a broader world that inspires Wheeler a little bit. Later, he has to write his thesis, and eventually he wants to write it on none other than Joan of Arc. This this project was given to him partially by his his teacher and his, his job is essentially to read over the historical documents. He, he's like a history major at this point and he's got to read over the historical documents on, on the trial of Joan of Arc. Right. And you know, Joan of Arc's kind of a character that might be interesting to a person like Claude Wheeler because she does have that kind of religious mystical spark in her. You know, I think Wheeler's the kind of guy who nowadays would maybe end up like a Buddhist or something or, or you know, join some, maybe join a cult or, or whatever. And he, so he, that thesis is, is fairly well taken by his, his teacher. It's around this time that Mr. Wheeler decides to change things up on the farm. Like he's going to go off to Maine with one of the brothers and to run the business there. And Claude is going to take over the farm. And he's saying, well, you've been having all these questions. You, you have all these criticisms of how I'm running the farm. So, okay, I'm just going to give it to you for you to run. And, and you take it over and you manage it. And he actually, this is one of the more interesting parts of the novel for me is that he does actually kind of sink his teeth into running the farm and he tries to innovate in various ways he explores. And we, and we get something that Catherine's interested in a lot in these novels, which is kind of the changing nature of the, of the prairie and how industrialization comes in and new innovation and how, you know, as immigrant families kind of go over generation to generation, they bring in new ideas and new traditions and 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 things. And, and that starts to change the land. But even as the frontier becomes a little bit more prosperous, this is something that bothers Claude on some kind of intellectual level. Quote, Claude felt sure that when he was a little boy and all the neighbors were poor, they and their houses and farms had more individuality. The farmers took time then to plant fine cottonwood groves on their places and to set Osage orange hedges along the borders of their fields. Now these trees are all being cut down and grubbed up. Just why, nobody knew. They impoverished the land. They made the snow drift. Nobody had them anymore. With, with prosperity came a kind of callousness. Everyone wanted to destroy the old things they used to take pride in. The orchards, which had been nursed and tended so carefully 20 years ago, were now left to die of neglect. It was less trouble to run into the town in an automobile and buy fruit than it was to raise it. The people themselves had changed. He could remember when all the farmers in the community were friendly towards each other, and now they were continually having lawsuits. Their sons were either stingy or grasping or extravagant and lazy, and they were always stirring up trouble. Evidently, it took more intelligence to spend money than to make it. So, again, Claude is simply complaining about the changes that are 
um, taking place in the land. Parts of changes that he's a part of as kind of the next generation of farm families. And now part one ends, book one ends with a winter sleigh ride with Claude um, in need Royce, a, a neighbor girl, the one woman he's going to eventually marry. Um, Bayless is there and they also pick up Bayless is, is his brother goes along and then there's this Gladys farmer, this other girl. So these are the four that go on this ride together. Now, it seems Claude has some romantic interest in, in Gladys, right? Not Anita at this point. And so there's a bit of a love triangle between Bayless, Claude, and and Gladys. And that's some tension there. And Now, Enid, Enid, E-N-I-D, Enid Royce, I, I think that's how it's pronounced. She's the Miller's, Miller's daughter. And we, we get a good introduction to her in this section. Now, during the sleigh ride, they're talking and... We learn that Bayless bought a house, right? And this seems to be a prelude to a marriage proposal and probably to Gladys. And so there's all this kind of hidden coded language about, you know, is Bayless going to basically make a move on Gladys? And this is something that seems to offend um, Claude, partially because he has some attraction to her, but also partially because he, he doesn't like how coy she's being about it, I think. So he ends up very disgusted with Gladys and to a degree, his brother at the end of, of part one, thanks to this this winter sleigh ride. Here's what uh, Catherine writes. He was so angry with Gladys that he hadn't been able to bid her good night. Everything she had said on the ride had nettled him. If she meant to marry Bayless, then she ought to throw off this affectation of freedom and independence. If she didn't mean to, why did she accept favors from him and let him get into the habit of walking into her house and putting his box of candy on the table, as all Frankfurt fellows did when they were courting. Certainly, she couldn't make herself believe that she liked his society. When they were classmates at the Frankfurt High School, Gladys was Claude's aesthetic proxy. It wasn't the proper thing for a boy to be clean or too careful about his dress and manners, but if he selected a girl who was irreproachable in those respects, got his Latin and his lab work with her, then all the personal attractions rebounded to his credit. Gladys had seemed to appreciate the honor Claude did her, and it was not on her own account that she wore those beautifully ironed muslin dresses when they went on botanical expeditions. So, uh, anyways, he, he's disappointed with what Gladys has, has become. Um, in fact, like, she wants independence. If, if it's true that she just wants independence, that's very much what Claude seems to be after. Although he never quite artic even articulates his desires as much to be as independent as always. It's a very vague idea. Um, he's eventually going to find it in the battlefields of France in a, in a horrible way, actually. Okay, so that's the end of book one. Book two is called Enid. Um, and basically, Claude begins to feel, and feel, feel more restlessness uh, as time goes on. He's bored with the farm already. He actually visits his friend Ralph in or he visits his brother in Denver. Yeah, Ralph is his brother. So he's, he's visiting his brother in Denver, and he sees this preposterous statue, and he starts to have these delusions about kind of historical greatness and stuff. And I think it's not insignificant that he, he is, is a history major. Uh, there are those types who, who find in history just kind of, a, kind of a bunch of romantic notions. Quote, the statue of Kit Carson on his horseback, drawn in the square, pointed westward. But there was no west in that sense anymore. There was still South America, perhaps. He could find something below the isthmus. Here the sky was like a lid shut down on the world. His brother could see the saints and martyrs behind him. 
So anyways, uh, Claude, after this, goes back to Frankfurt, back to um, Nebraska, and he sees uh, Anil in need for the first time since the, the sleigh ride. And then they start to essentially date. They start to go out a lot more. Um, and here we start to learn about some of Anil's interests, um, that she she's very much close to this brother Weldon. This is the same guy who, who pushed for, for the Wheelers to send Claude to the religious school. And she's interested in prohibition. And this is, of course, the days before the, the 18th, is it the 18th? Yeah, the 18th Amendment, I think, the one that, the, the Prohibition Amendment. And before, you know, it's kind of at the cusp, cusp of that kind of religious revivals of the 1920s. And I don't know if those started out in the West. I wouldn't be surprised if, if that's really the root of, of kind of the fundamentalist movement. I think the fundamentalist movement itself has its roots in the 1920s connected to kind of the prohibition politics. And in... Anid is really into that, but it's not clear to me exactly reading this why Claude, what Claude sees in Anid, except that maybe he just thinks in marriage and in and women he can find some some meaning in his life that he's not currently getting. Uh, a big turning point in their courtship, though, is when he falls ill. He has something called erosipsidus. I had to look it up. It's like a bunch of kind of brashes and patches on your face. Um, and it basically means he can't go outside because he looks so grotesque and and he has a long recovery and she's with him along with the recover and and this you know this illness has an effect on his his wanderlust even and cather to her credit never gets away from this kind of rootlessness this wanderlust this restlessness that that claude is constantly feeling even when he's on a sick bed for instance here's what uh cather writes uh, he had troubled his mother and disappointed his father. His marriage would be the first natural, dutiful, expected thing he'd ever done. It would be the beginning of usefulness and content. And his mother's oft-repeated psalm said it would restore his soul. It needs willingness to listen to him could scarcely, he could scarcely doubt. Her devotion to him during his illness was probably regarded by his friends as equivalent to an engagement. So he's able to like look at out beyond the illness to his marriage to Enid as sort of a quest almost. And it's a really bad reason to get into a marriage because you feel you're kind of achieving something if you get married. But that's how Claude enters into it. Um, eventually, they, um, you know, they essentially agree to marry. I don't even think there's a very there's like a proposal scene where she kind of laughs it off. But you know, they they basically agree to get married, and 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 live their lives as engaged people. They have a really good harvest and this harvest is is booned even further by the news of the war. And this is when the war starts to enter the story in in a bigger and bigger way. They start to get war news. They start to get the news about, you know, the Western Front and all that bad news and good news. And we get a lot of discussions of war. And we get a lot of fascinating discussions about the news of the war as people debate the duty to the homeland, uh, the you know, the duty to one's home country if you're an immigrant family. You know, some people, they aren't clearly on the side of Britain or or France, right? This is before the U.S. entered the war. And there's a lot of Americans who felt more loyalty maybe to Germany or Austria, where they came from, or maybe they didn't really feel that kindly towards Great Britain, so they didn't want to support Great Britain. Um, there's a lot of of characters that, you know, are or allow Cather to deal with this issue. And I think it's one of the stronger parts of the novel is just how the home front, looking at how the home front experiences the news of the war. It's some of the most interesting moments of the of the book. Now, times are good on the farm because of the war. It's raised the price of wheat and, and foods, and they've had a good harvest. 
Um, but Anid goes to Michigan on one of her kind of retreats or something, basically vacation with her family. And and so Claude's left alone with kind of the news of the war, with his friends and with his, his speculation. And, you know, the way, the, the, the way he talks about war is, or the way Cather talks about war through, through the mind of Claude is, is rather fascinating here. I, I don't quite know what to make of it, especially in the context of the later parts of the novel where we see they have almost a romantic embrace of, of war. Quote, a few days later, the story of the wiping out of an ancient and peaceful seat of learning at Louisville made it clear that this force of, was being directed towards incredible ends. By this time, too, the paupers were full, papers were full of accounts of the destruction of civilian populations. Something new, something evil was at work among mankind. Nobody was ready f with a name for it. None of the well-worn words descriptive of human behavior seemed adequate. The epithets grouped around the name of Attila were too personal, too dramatic, too full of familiar human passion. End quote. But you see that that's exactly the kind of thing that's going to attract Claude to the war, is it's it being kind of a force of energy, which is something Claude feels he's he's lacking in his life. But um, th th it's really clear that Claude is enamored with the historical scale of the conflict unfolding in, in Europe. Eventually, Enid returned from Michigan. Um, Claude's a bit disappointed at Enid's indifference to their upcoming marriage, but eventually they do make marriage plans. It's placed for June 1915, and he quickly settles into married life. They have a division of labor. The marriage clearly is almost an immediate failure in terms of giving Claude some extra kind of meaning in life, a purpose, a direction in his life, a solution to his wanderlust. And and that's where we're at, and that's that's the that's actually more than a hundred pages. It's it's probably hundred and fifty or so, but you know, more or less the first third of the novel. In the next episode, I'll look at uh, books three and four. Uh, that will cover basically the breakup breakdown of his marriage and the failure of his marriage. Uh, more about the home front, especially when the United States entered the war, and there's some really good stuff with that. And then we got a whole section. Um, on a boat, with basically Claude going across to the seas. And then that'll leave the final part of the story, book five, for, for a third episode. So I don't know. I don't know if people read this novel anymore, if, if, if it's on many people's reading lists. But if you have read one of ours, or if you're reading along with me, please, please leave your comments uh, below. I'd, I'd love to hear what you have to say about this this novel, your own thoughts about it. I'm going to talk more about my what I don't like about the novel. And it's not that I think Cather is being dishonest here. I do think these type of characters exist. I, I think she just it's it's kind of a dangerous point of view. I think in the context of the rise of fascism, and, I, and especially in the part five, book five of of this novel, I kept hearing the these kind of themes of, of kind of war as a purpose of life, of, of land, of defending the land being the purpose of life. And it's very kind of disturbing just in the historical context I live in now. And I, I, I guess in that sense, I shouldn't blame Catherine fully for that. But um, I, I will talk more about my my feelings on that and look at some specific problems. The first half, of, the first part of the novel, those kind of nice. I, I do like, you know, the the description, the the theme she tries to explore in the first half of the novel. Even if I'm a bit bored with this this character of someone who doesn't want to be on the farm anymore, we we've seen that so many times. But you know that that said, it's it's something Catherine does well well enough. 
So I, I guess I almost recommend reading the first couple parts of this book and then maybe not necessarily reading this the other half unless you just want kind of a, a cheap and easy sentimental war novel. But anyways, um, that's going to do it for this episode. If you have comments, please send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'll be back with uh, part two of my comments on one of ours. As always, thanks so much for listening, and I'll, I'll be back shortly with, in, in my next episode.